Ice Age. Yes, there was an Ice Age, but it's different than the one that we've commonly heard about or that we've been taught about. So those are some things that we can look forward to this quarter as we study God is Faithful. Administrative note, if you sign up for a student workbook, make sure that you pick it up from the gentleman in the back. Um, they, they have those there. Again, that's if you signed up for it. We have a couple extra for those who did not sign up. Also, if you sign up for a family devotional, if you wanted us to order that for you, please see me after class. I have those here. They're in the box in the front. Make sure you also have the, the $2, because remember, the cost for those is $2. As we start this third quarter, it's important that we keep in mind what we've learned in the previous quarters, especially the following truth. The way we persuade people to believe the message of Christ is not through clever rhetoric, logical arguments, or extra-biblical evidence. That's not the way we persuade people to believe the message of Christ. These, these methods may seem wise, use logic, use, use this extra-biblical evidence, use some clever argumentation. It may seem wise and may seem to make you more credible to the people in our world, but actually these methods are powerless against the dead and rebellious hearts of men. How do we persuade people then? It is, as we've said, and as the Bible says, with the foolishness of the message preached. We simply proclaim the gospel. We proclaim the message of salvation. We proclaim the Bible. It is the living and active word of God. It cuts into soul and spirit. It lays bare the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible, remember, and don't, don't move away from this, the Bible is what awakens people to reality. As the unbelieving elect hear the Bible shared, as they hear it explained, as they hear it exemplified by believers, the Holy Spirit causes those unbelievers to recognize the truth of the gospel for what it is, and they believe. To say it simply, the Bible is what shows people God. It shows them Christ. There is no need for us to try and bring people along with some cleverly devised argument to somehow eventually bring them to God. Just show them God. Just show them God by showing them the scriptures. Show them God as you explain the scriptures. Show them God as you live the scriptures. And if someone will not believe when he sees God himself on display in the word and through your good works, informed by the word, then what more can you show them? What more could possibly cause them to believe? This is the method of salvation that God has ordained. It is the one that he uses to bring people to faith. That is simply sharing the word of God. I don't know if any of you have had a chance to listen to the recent Shepherds Conference, also called the Inerrancy Summit, that took place a week or two ago in California. The talks there were very relevant, actually, for what we've been discussing in Sunday school. I particularly appreciated the second conference message from Alistair Begg, in which he presented the following. God's word is like a lion. And the best way to defend a, to defend a lion is to simply let him out of his cage. So it is for us with the word of God. As ambassadors and apologists for Christ, let us not be deceived into thinking that the only way we're going to reach people is if we acquire scientific credibility, if we get some contextual coolness, or if we show some philosophic agility. This is false. And it actually comes from the devil. The only way we will reach people is if we let the lion out. Trusting in God to do all the work of salvation by his Holy Spirit as we simply pray and share the word. Questions or comments about what I'm presenting to you? So let's not forget that as we move forward in these quarters, the way we persuade people to believe the arguments that are powerful to bring salvation 
are simply the scriptures. And it's God's word, or it's God's spirit that uses the word that causes people to believe. All right, now we start quarter three by moving into the third C. Remember our seven C's? The seven C's of history, our outline. We move into the third C now, catastrophe. Now our first C, our first C, creation, took place around what date? About, about 4,000 B.C. The specific timeline the answers in Genesis uses based on the research and calculations of Archbishop Usher, um, someone I think believe in the 1600s, says about 4,004. But you can say 4,000, that's fine. About 4,000 B.C. and the second C, so that was the first C, creation. The second C, corruption, took place around what date? The fall took place about what year? If creation was about 4,000 B.C.? The fall also about 4,000 B.C. Corruption also about 4,000 B.C. Because they happened very close to one another. Now, when does the third C take place? Maybe some of you remember when we went over the dates in our, when we went over the seven Cs. Catastrophe. What year B.C. does the flood occur? It takes place about 1,700 years after creation. So about 2340 B.C. About 2340 B.C. And remember, you say, well, how do you get to that date? Well, it's simply by using the genealogies in Genesis, using the information from the Bible. So the flood is going to take place about 1,700 years, about 16 to 1,700 years after creation and then after the fall. And that's what we're talking about today. This is our first lesson on the flood, and we're mainly focusing on two questions today. Why does God send the flood? And why does God save Noah and his family from the flood? We see those facts, but we want to know why, because they're going to be instructive for us. Let's pray before we go on. Lord God, I pray that you would give me the ability to explain, Lord, sanctify in my heart just a, a love for your truth. And I pray that you would do the same thing for the hearts of the people who are listening. They would just love your truth, love you, and be so bold to declare it. God, there are many things, Lord, that we often pray when it comes to sharing your word. But the prayer that is so evident in the scriptures about your word and sharing it is simply for boldness. Lord, those first believers prayed for boldness, that they might share the word as they ought. God, I pray that you would do the same thing for us, that we would share the word as we ought. We'd be so confident in it, so happy in it, so obedient in it, that we boldly declare it. We trust in you for that, God. Give us more confidence. Instruct us now from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to begin our investigation of the flood by reading the first part of the flood account. So if you could open your Bibles and turn to Genesis 6. Genesis 6-5, and we'll read down to verse 1 of chapter 7. I want to answer those two questions. Why did God send the flood? And why does God spare Noah from the flood? So this is a somewhat long section. But let's read it together. Or follow along as, as I read. Read with me. Starting in verse 5 of chapter 6. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. 
Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with a lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food, which is edible, and gather it to yourself. And it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did. According to all that God had commanded him, so he did. And then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Thank you for reading that with me. As always, when we study a passage of the Bible, we want to start by making observations of the text. Before we interpret, we need to ask questions about what we see. So let's do that. Notice the phrase in verse 9, uh, chapter 6. These are the records of the generations of Noah. We've seen this phrase before, or this kind of phrase before, haven't we? This phrase indicates that this passage is what kind of literature? If it's a record of the generations, historical narrative. Historical narrative. This is history. We are looking at historical narrative just like we were looking at historical narrative earlier in Genesis and later in Genesis. Notice the descriptions of the people of the earth. What sort of descriptions are given of them? We see about eight of them in this passage. The wickedness of man was great, right? That's in verse 5. What else is said about mankind? Their thoughts were con- are only evil continually, right? That's verse 5 as well. What else is said? I know they're right there on the page, so you can just go ahead and call them out. The earth is said to be corrupt, right? Verse 11, the earth was corrupt. The earth was also filled with violence, verse 11. Verse 12, it again says the earth was corrupt. Verse 12, all flesh had corrupted their way. Verse 13, the earth is filled with violence because of them, that is men. And then verse 1 of chapter 7, Noah alone is said to be righteous on the earth. So eight different times God refers to universal wickedness on the earth, specifically violence. Now what was God's attitude toward what he saw? He was grieved and he was sorry. And we might expect, oh, he was angry. And I'm sure there was anger there too. But specifically we're told he was grieved. He felt sorry that he had made man. God then determines to destroy all mankind. But it's not just men. What else would be destroyed? Not just men, but also all the animals. 
or all the land-dwelling animals. That would be the birds and the, the, the land creatures. What descriptions are given of Noah in this passage? There are several descriptions of mankind, but also several descriptions of Noah. So go ahead and call it out. What things are said about Noah? He was a righteous man. He's said to be righteous. Verse 9. What else? Blameless in his time. Also in verse 9. And in the end of verse 9, Noah walked with God. So three descriptions there, but also two others in this passage. What else is said about Noah? Very good. Verse 8. Noah found favor in God's sight. And then as we mentioned, verse 1 of chapter 7, Noah alone is said to be righteous on the earth. And now what descriptions are given regarding the righteousness of Noah's family members? There are none, right? There aren't any descriptions of their righteousness. So were they sinful? Were they righteous? Well, all we can say is that the family appears to have supported and obeyed Noah as Noah sought to obey God's commands. God tells Noah to do certain things, and the family, there's no indication that the family was opposing that, and they also get into the ark with Noah. Notice verse 18. God mentions a covenant. Who establishes the covenant between God and Moses? It's God, right? doesn't say, all right, let's make a covenant. God says, I will establish a covenant. Besides build an ark, what commands does God give Noah? What are some of the other things that he tells him to do? right. Take two of all animal kinds into the ark and make sure you have a male and a female. So that's in verses 19 to 20. What else is Noah said to do? That's right. He's got to get in the ark. and He's got to get in the ark with his family. So that's verse 18. There's one other command. Not just bringing the animals into the ark, not just bringing himself. Yeah, Judy? That's right. Gather food. And who's the food for? Or what were you going to say, Susan? That's right. And as, uh, as Eric was saying, all, all the creatures. He wasn't just getting food for himself and his family, but also for the animals. Now, once again, and this should maybe, I should notice this because of what we talked about last time in Sunday school, we see human food and animal food being talked about together. And humans are only eating what at this time? A vegetarian diet. They technically could have eaten other things other than vegetables, but they were not meat eaters. Animal food was the same. Now you may notice the term cubit in your Bibles. What is a cubit? I think it's a really cute sounding word. Cubit is a unit of measurement. Does anybody know what it equals? About 18 inches. It was the length of your elbow to the end of your fingertips. Now, there is some variation in that length. Depending on culture, the, the length of a cubit could be between a little less than 18 inches to a little bit more than 20 inches. We'll talk more about the cubit when we get to how big the arc was. But just for now, cubit is the length of the elbow to the fingertips. What was Noah's response to God's commands? He did everything. And we see that at the end of the chapter. According to all that God had commanded him, so he did. He obeyed God in everything. All right, so some very good observations. Let's ask some interpretive questions now. We can only interpret after we've taken time to do observations. Why does God send a flood on mankind? It's said in the passage several times, so it's hopefully an answer that we can come to readily. Because of the great wickedness of mankind. Because man is so reprehensibly wicked, he sends a flood. Now what does this pronouncement of judgment reveal to us about the character of God? Yeah, Rob. That's right, it's holiness, right? 
And we've seen that already in Genesis. We see him as judge. We see him as the righteous judge who righteously punishes, curses Adam and Eve and Cain because of their sins. But now we see him judging the whole world for its wickedness. We see God's holiness. We see his righteousness. This is a God who we need to know about and that the Israelites needed to know about, a God who cannot stand sin, cannot stand wickedness. And we saw from this passage that God is greatly grieved by sin. He was grieved. He was sorrowful. He was grieved by the sin and violence that he saw. But what does this show us about the character of God? It's part of his holiness, but we can focus in on something more specific. Yeah, Brian. That's what I was thinking, right. His goodness, right? We see that God is good and compassionate. It makes him sorrowful to see evil being done instead of good being done. And I think this is very powerful. We sometimes think of God as being stoic or maybe just being angry or happy all the time. But God feels sorrow. God feels grief. The perfect God, worthy of all worship, experiences great grief. And what is it that makes God grieve? It's sin. It grieves God to see people hurting one another. It grieves God to see people failing to imitate him. It grieves God to see people serving false idols that do not and cannot satisfy. And it grieves God to see people rebel against him. God is good. He's compassionate. He's generous. He wants to do good. He wants to see good in all his creation. And yet he sees the rebellion, the rejection of his goodness. And that grieves him. It makes him sorrowful. If God didn't react at all, emotionally, to sin, if he wasn't grieved or if he wasn't angry about sin, what would that indicate about God? Well, it would, it's certainly a sign of indifference, and what would that indifference indicate about him? He doesn't care. It means that sin is not a big deal. In other words, the holiness of God is not that great, and the goodness of God is not that great. If, I mean, if you even think about it in human terms, if someone is in the presence of great evil and he doesn't react to it, he says, oh, yeah, I guess that happened. You would say, well, that, he's not very sensitive to that. He doesn't have a very uh, a strong sense of justice or goodness. Doesn't he see that something terrible is happening? He's not affected by that? Goodness cannot help but be grieved by evil. A good man is grieved and angry at evil and those who do it. And a good God is grieved and angry at evil and those who do it. Now, God is so grieved that the text says he was sorry that he made man. That's intense. Sorry about those booms there. But does that mean that God made a mistake? He says, I'm sorry that I made man. Did you make a mistake, God? Were you surprised at the terrible outcome of man? And therefore, you've got to change your plans? And this would seem to go contrary to the claim God later makes that he is not changeable like a man. He doesn't change his mind. God, aren't you changing your mind here? You're sorry that you made man? No, this is not the case. So how ought we to understand God's expression of regret here as it relates to his foreknowledge and his sovereignty? You're going to say something, Paul?
That's, yeah. I think that's exactly what we should do. Thanks for sharing that, Paul. A great opportunity, or just to repeat a little bit what you were saying. Someone who says, he turns away from God because God allows so much evil in the world. Why does God allow this? How can he be a good God? Or how could there be a God if he allows all these things? It's great, just as you were saying, Paul, to show them that God does care about these things. And he does judge these things. He has judged them. And I'm sure also part of your discussion, he will judge them. He's not going to let any of these things go unnoticed because he's holy and because he's good. And yeah, as you're pointing out, even this passage makes very clear his goodness because he was grieved over the sin. Thanks for sharing that, Paul. Let's come back to the question I was asking about God's feeling sorry, regretful. How does that work with his foreknowledge and sovereignty? Did God change his plans? How do we answer that question? I think we can answer, or Eric, go ahead. That's a great parallel that you're making, Eric, mentioning Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus. If you remember that passage, that's where that famous verse comes from, Jesus wept. But Jesus, before he even went to the town, he said, I'm going there to wake up Lazarus. I'm going there to raise him from the dead. But when he gets there, he weeps. Or as part of his being there, he weeps. Why are you crying, Jesus? Don't you know what's going to happen? Did you forget what you're going to do? He was affected. He was affected by the terribleness of sin and the terribleness of death. And so we also see that here. We can even say, I'm going to try and answer the question this way in terms of, did God change his mind because he felt regretful? It was always God's plan to send a flood on man's wickedness. God's sorrow and regret were always foreknown and foreordained as the means by which he would act. I say that again. It was always God's plan to send a flood on man's wickedness. He was not changing his mind. It was always part of his design, his plan. His sorrow and regret, which were real, were always foreknown and foreordained as the means by which he would act. He knew that this wickedness would happen. He ordained, he allowed it to happen, and he knew that it would cause him to feel sorrowful even to the point of being sorry that he made man, yet that was always part of his plan. And we see similar situations to this in other parts of the Bible. You may remember, later on in the Pentateuch, when Israel creates a golden calf, God says to Moses, let me alone, that I may destroy them. I'm going to destroy all the Israelites, and Moses, I'll make of you a great nation. Well, it doesn't happen. Why doesn't it happen? Right. Moses intercedes. He says, God, for the sake of your own name, don't do this. Don't let people malign you. And say, oh, he led him out into the wilderness to destroy them. Moses intercedes for Israel and turns aside God's burning wrath. So, wait, did God change his mind? Was God's foreknowledge or sovereignty compromised there? Did Moses sway God? Did God change? Well, no, not really. God had foreknown and foreordained that he would be angry over Israel's sin and that Moses would rescue Israel as an intercessor. The whole exchange was foreordained to show forth the glory of God. Or take another situation, Jonah and Nineveh. God promises that destruction will come to Nineveh and he sends Jonah to preach to the people, warning them of the judgment. But then God relents. God relents of that destruction and because the people repented. So did God change his mind there? Did he suddenly have a change of heart and say, eh, I'll be gracious today. I won't judge him. No, God had always ordained that Nineveh would repent 
and that he would not judge them. Their repentance was going to be the means to accomplish what his plan always was, to forestall his own judgment. None of this means that God's emotions aren't real. They are. Otherwise, God would be lying to us when he says he felt sorrowful or he felt anger. His emotions are real, nor does it mean that God is being deceptive about his purposes. He didn't really intend to. He was just faking it. No. If God's foreordained means of bringing about the situations that ultimately happened, if they were not present, then God would indeed proceed upon his originally intended actions. If Moses did not intercede for Israel, then Israel would have indeed been wiped out. God was not joking about that. And without Jonah's preaching, and without the people of Nineveh's repentance, then Nineveh would have been obliterated. God was not pulling our leg when he said that. God's expressed intentions in each of these passages are real. One second, Richard. His emotions are real. Yet all of this is under the umbrella of God's sovereign power and foreknowledge. This is a little bit transcendent for us because we're not omniscient. It's not going to be completely like our own experience. But it's all real. And so it is here in Genesis 6. The regret of God is real because of his character. He cannot help but feel this emotion in light of man's extreme wickedness. Yet, God foreordained the situation and even his own reaction to it. God was not changing. He had always foreordained the things that happened uh, with man and with the flood. What are you going to say, Richard? Hmm. Right, right. That's a good, a good mention there, Richard. God also follows through many times with exactly what he said he was going to do. With Son of Gomorrah is a great example. That was part of his foreordained sovereignty. And so it is also when he seems to change his mind. He's not really, but he's allowing, he has foreordained certain things to, um, to change what he originally expressed. Certain things will, like Moses' intercession, would be the means by which God would accomplish his ultimate will. Was that clear? Are there any questions or comments about that idea? Yes, Dwayne. Or oh, Pastor. Yeah, thanks for saying that, Pastor. Uh, prayer and repentance are often the means by which God moves away from his originally stated intention. And I think that's really encouraging for us because if you understand the doctrines of grace, you might think that kills your prayer life. You say, well, if God's got everything under his control. If he's not going to change his mind, then why pray? I mean, he's going to do it regardless whether I pray or not. But don't you understand that prayer is the means by which God is actually going to accomplish his will? He's ordained prayer. He's ordained your witnessing. He's ordained your service as the means by which he actually accomplishes his will. So you get to enjoy being part of it. And you get to enjoy the fellowship of God with it. And you actually cause things to happen. It's all part of God's plan. But he uses your prayer and your repentance and your service as the means. I think I saw another hand. Yeah, Cheryl. 
That's a good point, Cheryl. Thanks for sharing that. Just to repeat a little bit of what you're saying. Not only at the cross, but we see even here and throughout the scriptures that God glorifying himself and God displaying his goodness is often at great cost to himself. Um, the grief and sorrow that he experiences is seeing his creation turning against, each, turning against itself in violence and people sinning against one another, sinning against him. This is, I think, one of the, another wondrous aspect of the gospel that uh, God allowed great pain and sorrow for himself in order to show forth his great goodness and in order to be greatly good to his creation. And that just shows him to be even more worthy, even more worthy of worship. I appreciate your comments as we move through. So we see in his good sorrow and his righteous anger, God promises to destroy the earth with water. So it should be very clear why he, why he does that. Because he's good. Because he's holy. But God says that he will spare Noah. He will spare Noah and his family. Now why is that? Why doesn't Noah perish in the flood? walked with God. He was righteous. We see that emphasized multiple times in the passage. And so this is readily apparent. But does this mean that Noah was not a sinner? No, it can't mean that. Why not? Exactly. Very well said, Steve. He's a descendant of Adam. And all of Adam's descendants have been cursed. They are all sinners. And this is what we've talked through in the last lesson. So how does this fit together? How can Noah be righteous and also be a descendant of Adam? And where does his righteousness come from? We see that he's obedient to God, but why? And in terms of his being righteous and others not, is it just that Noah tried harder? Noah was specially gifted in that way? And before we answer that question, let's turn to a very helpful passage in the New Testament good exposition, good explanation of this passage in Hebrews. So turn to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verse 6 and 7. Now you know that this passage is um, about a lot of different characters in the Old Testament. Noah is mentioned in verse 7, but let's start in verse 6. Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. But this should answer our question pretty clearly. Why is it that Noah obeyed God, according to Hebrews? Because he had faith. He, had, he believed God. He had faith. And so to tie it all together, where did Noah's righteousness come from? Not his works, but his faith. It was the simple faith that caused him to become, as the end of verse 7 says, to become an heir of righteousness. Now, where did Noah's faith come from? It came from God, right? It was a gift from God. We've seen this already in our study about man's heart. God has to be the one to give faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is very clear. It's a gift by God, gift from God. By grace through faith, we come to salvation. And this is also consistent with what is even revealed in Genesis 6. Because as we saw, God says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. It's a unilateral declaration. No conditions mentioned, no permission asked. God acts all by himself and chooses to show favor to Noah. You see, Noah was part of that same seed of which Abel was also a part. The very seed that we talked about at the fall, the seed promised by God to the serpent, in Genesis 3, when God said, I will place enmity between the woman and you and her seed and your seed. I will place enmity, God says. I will cause the chosen descendants of Adam and Eve to resist you and your brood, O Satan. I will establish this different seed, and I will establish its coming conqueror. 
This seed will be according to faith, the faith that I myself will give. Genesis, and really the whole scriptures, is about tracing this seed. We see it clearly with Abel. We see the first conflict of the two types of seed. Abel offers a pleasing sacrifice. By faith, Cain, hateful of his brother's righteousness, destroys him. God establishes another righteous seed in place of Abel through Seth. And Seth's descendant, Noah, too becomes an heir of righteousness. He is also placed into the seed of faith. Like Abraham, Noah's later descendant, Noah believed God and was therefore declared righteous. But this belief came from God. God gave Noah his faith. And this faith caused Noah to be obedient and to also come in conflict with the seed of Satan, with the brood of Satan. Because you remember there in Hebrews 11, it says he built the ark and therefore condemned the world. Noah's building of the ark was a condemnation of the world. Sometimes people say that salvation was achieved differently by people in the Old Testament. That in Christ we are under the covenant of grace, but before Christ people were under the covenant of works. Now we believe by faith and are saved, but before people were saved by their obedience to God's law. But this is not true. It cannot be true. And it runs clearly contrary to what the scripture says. God's commands were never a means of salvation. They could never produce salvation all by themselves. It is always it has always been true, or let me say this, Paul says, Apostle Paul, the law was introduced actually to increase awareness of sin and the need for a savior. People have never been saved by the law. People have always been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We say, well, how could they be saved by faith in Jesus Christ? They didn't even know who Jesus Christ was. It is true that God's salvation has progressively been revealed. Not all of the details were present at the beginning or in the different parts of the Bible, but the main message has always been present. Even at the fall, that message is man needs God to provide his salvation. Man needs God to provide a savior for man. Adam and Eve were specifically shown that they needed someone to cover their shame and they needed somebody to rescue them from the serpent and his deception. The people of Israel were shown through various means that they needed God to provide a substitute on their behalf to bear their sins and to make them righteous. They didn't know the name Jesus Christ, but they understood that God had to provide a substitute for them. The later Israelites were shown that this substitute would be the anointed one of God, would be the Messiah. He would be the king, and yet he would also be a sufferer. He would die. This mystery was fully revealed when Jesus himself came. God would not simply provide a substitute. God is the substitute. God sent his own son to be the savior that Adam, Noah, Moses, Isaiah, and all the other Old Testament saints were looking for. As believers today, we have the mystery of the gospel fully revealed. And therefore, we share that fully revealed gospel. Rightly, we declare, along with the apostles, that there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. It is only by faith in Jesus Christ, the God-man, that people can be saved. And there's no reason for us to say, oh, well, if people believed without all the details before, then we don't need to share all the details. No, we have all the details, and we're told to declare all the details. And those who reject those details say, oh, I don't think Jesus is really God, or I don't think Jesus is the substitute, I don't think he's the Messiah. No, they're rejecting God then. They're rejecting God's substitute in total. I say again, salvation has always been by faith in Jesus Christ. Never was it by meritorious works. Even the faith of each Old Testament saint was an unearned gift from God. So let's answer our question more fully. Why did God spare Noah from the flood? Let's 
them give us a complete answer to that question. It just comes down to God was gracious to Noah. God spared Noah because of the righteousness that God by faith had put in Noah. So God saves Noah simply because God chose to be gracious to him. That's why Noah was spared. Noah's obedience was the result of God's being gracious to him. It was not the reason that God was gracious to him. So what were the Israelites supposed to learn from this beginning of the flood account? What is the point about talking about the wickedness of the world and the righteousness of Noah? Can it be, for any other reason than to draw the Israelites themselves to faith in God? The message from Moses. Believe God as Noah did. Be rescued from the holy judgment of God as Noah was. Walk with God and let his face shine upon you in blessing. Be obedient to God. Believe that he is worthy of your obedience. Do not be like the wicked, violent, disbelieving world that perished in the judgment. And that is the same message for us today, is it not? And it is the same message for our world. Listen to the way that Second Peter puts it. Actually, if you could turn to Second Peter, because it's not too far from Hebrews. Look at Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 2. It's actually kind of cool. Second Peter has a lot to say about Noah. This is one of the sections there, and our memory verse is contained in this section. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and we'll read down to verse 10. I bring this verse up to show you how similar our own situation is to that described for Noah. To give you context, Peter is warning his audience, believers, against false teachers and against the judgment that awaits false teachers and those who follow them. Here's what it says in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous lives, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring self-will, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. It's the same message, right? The character of God was on display in the flood, and it has always been on display in the Bible. We behold the kindness and severity of God, and it is meant to bring us to faith, to bring us to repentance. May this be the case in each one of us. May we believe God as Noah did, because of God's goodness, because of his holiness, because of his judgment. And may we declare that same message to others so that they may be brought to faith and joyous salvation. They need to know about the judgment of God. They need to know about the holiness of God. They need to know about the goodness and compassion of God. Questions or comments? Yes, Michelle. That's another good point. Thanks, Michelle. It's not simply that God was being gracious to Noah. It's also part of his sovereign plan, and specifically the sovereign plan to send the conquering seed, the one that would crush the serpent's head. So yeah, God is, uh, we see a number of times the righteous seed trying to be destroyed. I mean, even when Jesus' own birth, you have um, 
Herod try to slay all the children in Bethlehem. Trying to destroy the conquering seed. But God, of course, wouldn't allow that. In his sovereign purposes, he, he rescued Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. Other comments or questions? Yes, Steve. That's a great point, Steve. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, God often uses simple means to be um, part of what gives people the gift of faith. We saw it with Timothy, right? Paul tells Timothy, your faith was first in your grandmother and in your mother. They taught you to believe the scriptures. And that's probably the same for Noah. His father and grandfather, they lived a really long time. And they undoubtedly shared truths about God with Noah. I do want to consider a few questions before we end today. If you have your workbooks, if you sign up for them and have those, we're going to be considering a few questions from those. If you don't have them, don't worry. I'll, I'll tell you the questions, and I'll also display them up here. It's on page 11 in your quarter three workbooks. We've done observation. We've done interpretation. Let's seek application with a few more questions. Again, this is page 11. First question. People often claim that God is cruel to have wiped out every person on the face of the earth in the flood. How would you use the text we have discussed today to help those people understand that God's actions were just? What would you say? We talked about this a little bit already. Yeah, Eric. Thanks for sharing that, Eric. God had to bring the judgment because of his own holiness and goodness. And really, objections to that are simply, they must come simply from an underestimation of God's holiness and an overestimation of man's goodness. Say, oh, man, didn't really deserve that? Just look in the passage how much man's wickedness is described. Eight times in extreme language. And then, God's sorrow over that, God's goodness that cannot allow that kind of wickedness to continue because he's too good, because he's too just. We need to show people from this passage and many others in the scriptures that man is very much deserving of the judgment of God. The continual effrontery to God and his goodness by every person on earth at the time of the flood certainly called for God's just punishment. And as part of that answer, I see your hand, Roy but I'm going to have to hold off your question just for the sake of time or your comment. Part of that also answer is that we need the Bible to show us what justice is because if we come with our own standard of judgment, we're actually going to be self-contradictory. This is an opportunity for the don't answer answer strategy. If you say that God is unjust, what is the standard that you're basing that judgment on? You say, well, because of what I think is just. Well, if that's your own standard of justice, then who are you to say that God is unjust? Everyone has his own sense. Everybody has his own sense of what's right and wrong. And it might not be the same for everybody. So how can you say that God is unjust? You need someone to tell you what is just. You need a standard. You need the standard to show you what is just. And that only comes from the Bible. Um, briefly, two other questions. Noah is described as a preacher of righteousness to an ungodly world. Is our situation any different from his? How should we live in light of this truth? 
Is our situation different? We certainly are not looking at a flood about to happen on the earth, and we're not building an ark. But in many ways, our situation is the exact same. As you saw from the verse that we read before, and there's another verse from Second Peter that I don't have time to read, but we've mentioned it before in class. It says, in the last days, mockers are going to come and say, where's Jesus' coming? Everything's happening just as it always has. But they forget that God created the world out of nothing, that God sent a flood to destroy the world, and that God will destroy the world with fire. We stand as preachers of righteousness in the face of judgment, just like Noah did. We proclaim to a doomed generation and warn them of the coming judgment of God, and we plead with them to repent in light of God's kindness shown in his patience. Say, well, why does God allow all these evil things to happen in the world? He will judge them. But the reason he has not destroyed everybody already is because he is being patient. He is showing kindness to you and to all the people on the earth that they might repent. One last question. Why is it important to recognize that our righteousness does not come from us, but is found in Christ alone? First of all, so that we don't believe a false gospel that damns us. Any religion or Christian sect that claims that you can earn God's favor through your works that Christ enables you to produce your own merit is a different gospel than the, than the message of the scriptures. And it's damning. So that's the first reason. But secondly, even when we fundamentally believe the true gospel, we can stumble in our Christian race when we start trying to produce our own righteousness. We don't pursue good works or holiness in an effort to become acceptable to God or to secure his favor or to get his judgment off our backs. All, all such efforts of those kind are actually dishonoring to God and injuring to ourselves. Rather, we revel in the gift of righteousness provided to us in Christ, and we pursue holiness and good works in order that we may know God more, make him known more, and make his joy full in us. The last thing, I want to share is our memory verse. As I mentioned, it actually comes from that passage in 2 Peter, 2 Peter 2. I'd like you to memorize this with me. I think this will allow you to further meditate on the truths that we've discussed and will be discussing. I think it will equip you in your own discipleship, apologetics, and evangelism. Just as Paul mentioned, he was able to go to um, what the Bible said about Noah and the flood is being able to share with somebody. We want to be able to do the same thing. And even by quoting this verse, and I think it'll be an encouragement to your kids as they also learn and memorize this verse. And this is a particularly helpful verse to memorize, at least for three reasons. It's an example of a New Testament writer affirming the historicity of the global flood and of Noah. It reminds us of the holiness of God displayed in the flood judgment, and it reminds us of our own position parallel to Noah. We too are preachers of righteousness, eager to deliver people from the influence of Satan and false teachers in the face of a coming judgment. So let's read the verse together, and then we'll close in prayer. 2 Peter 2.5 And God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Quick reminder, if you didn't order a workbook, but you want one, come see me. And if you haven't picked up your family devotional, which none of you have, if you ordered one, please see me after class. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for revealing your kindness and your holiness in the flood judgment. Lord, you were too good. You're too righteous to let sin go, to allow rampant wickedness to not affect you. Lord, even your grief is so sweet to us because we see, wow, he, you are such a good God. Lord, we thank you for being gracious to us, showing your goodness to us. We did not deserve it, but you are generous. Lord, may we know more of your goodness. Lord, sanctify us and make us bold so we can know more of your goodness and we can show more of it for our own joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name.